Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Thanks for coming back and joining me for Act 2 of my chat with Dominic West. I hope you had a good interval or intermission, if that's what you call it, with any ice creams or drinks. You might have needed refreshment. Here he is, without further ado, the terrific Dominic West. Stage door Johnny Company, this is your call for the top of Act 2. Mr. West and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. Act 2, beginners, please. So you did The River, which was the play that came after Jerusalem, which yeah. of course was Jez's great, you know, still called by people the best player of the 21st century, and Mark Rylance had this extraordinary triumph in it and carried on doing it, you know, 10 years later, 12 years later. So you did it at upstairs at the Royal Court. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary sort of move, because at that point, people were p- camping out to see the new Jez Butterworth with yeah. play. But only, I don't know how many seats that eighty little theatre holds, tiny. And it was an incredible event. And for anybody who doesn't know, it, by the way, it's my favourite of Jez's plays. Really? really? Yeah, it really is. I didn't see you do it, which was a terrible regret. I saw Hugh Jackman do it in New York. Dominic <laughs> making an excellent face. <laughs> I bet you were fantastic. <laughs> um, well, I think the thing was about that, Jez obviously had this massive hit of Jerusalem on his hands yeah. and he did get not right of block but he he was inevitably worried about the next show and and yeah. uh and um Ian Rickson said uh you know we'll just do it upstairs at the Royal Court we'll just do a small show and I think that gave him a freedom and thank god he, they they asked me or you know and I I loved it amazing did you? Yeah, I loved it. You had to cook a trout on stage. Yeah, I had to uh I'd never really fished what I had as a kid but yeah, I had to gut and cook a trout, a sea trout, and eat it every night. It yeah. was great. It was, you know, it was brilliant. He's so good on those coups de theatre, those, you know. Yeah, no, it was, it's a wonderful play. But if you look at it, and, and Jez used to joke with me because he think, he, I think he sort of thought I slightly thought this, that actually it didn't all hang together, that it was all artifice. And, and it sort of what is. And he's such a good writer, you, you go along with it, and, and he gives you enough to, uh, to thrill you. One of the reasons I love his plays, actually, and one of the, the, the thing I sort of look for in plays sometimes is the sense, uh, maybe I'm a bit less, a bit more forgiving of the sort of fuzzy edges because they feel like dreams. You know, they mm. really do feel like they're sort yeah. of... And Jez's dreams are so particularly enjoyable and so particularly exciting. It's like a sort of great night in the pub. Yeah. Except, of course, the river was less of a good night in the pub. As people seem to be dying <laughs> And there's some very dark stuff going on outside. Well, there's a lot of boasting about fishing. Right. And a lot of boasting about fishing, which is... Or not boasting, but, you know... Yeah. Rhapsodizing about fishing. Right. I loved it. I just thought it was... I just thought there was something amazingly powerful about it. And that's what, you know, something that I... It's very elemental, isn't it? The, The lights go down in a play and... House in the stage lights come up, 
and you know quite soon, or at least I feel like I do, whether it's going to grip me, whether it's going to hold me, or whether it's not. And a bit like the Tim Crouch example, we'll forgive an incredible amount, I think. But there's something you won't forgive if it lets you down. And I've often wondered about that difference, but distance between why the good ones are so great, like I found the river and Jerusalem, of course, but and why the bad ones feel so hellish. Mm. It's something to do with the hazard of it, isn't it? That that sort of somehow all this make believe in a room is invested with all our attention and all our love and sympathy. But when it lets us down, we feel slightly betrayed. Mm. Do you think that's what's going on with an audience? Yes. And and the fact that the best entertainment I've ever had has been watching a play at the theatre. And the worst. You know, you 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 can be more enraptured and, and transfigured by watching a play, I think, even than music or anything else. Why and do you think that is? Uh, maybe, maybe because I'm an actor, <laughs> but but uh, you know, on the I I don't know uh, uh, because it is music and 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 spoken and I don't know it, you know actually opera should be the best on that basis which I I've never really got into but but also the fact that thing where you can actually when it's bad you can't even look at the stage you, you will look at anyone but <laughs> oh the person God, speaking to awful. you and it happens as you say very quickly you yeah. very quickly go they've let me down you know and it's it happens more often than the transfiguration you know the transfiguration yeah. i've had seven nights at the theater when i felt like that maybe a few more but but yes yeah. i don't know i don't know what it is you're you're a better an, an, an analyst than me but it's yeah it can be transfiguring and it if it's not, it can be the worst. It's worse than watching a bad film. It's worse than listening worse. to bad music. It's 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 worse than any other performance. <laughs> if it's bad theatre, it's hell. But that, in a weird, weird way, the hazard of it, I think, is what's so great about it, isn't it? You, you're right. It, the rarity value of it, it's a terrible return on one's investment. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a, as a gamble, it's rubbish. It's, yeah, rubbish. Because you say the transfiguration is so rare. Yeah. But when it happens, it's yeah. just amazing. And for all that investment that you bring to it, because you're live, you're there, you're sitting in, right in front of you, and you and have now to spend three hundred quid on a ticket. Uh, Christ knows, yes. If throw in parking and babysitting, tell me about those seven times. I know you've just uh, tossed that number off the top of your head. Oh, what, what are the shows you've seen that have changed you, or you that stay with you in that way? Well, most of them are things like, well, Guards Nietzsche was one, Mill on the Floss was another, oh. most Catherine Hunters, most, uh, a lot of Complicite, although yeah. they've gone the other way as well. God, let me, th- I can't think now, but um, mm. I think, remember watching Anthony Hopkins, and then I finally, I got to work with Hopkins. The first film I did was uh, Picasso, was he playing Picasso, and oh, yes. I was his son, and he, I remember we were in, um, sitting in this amazing old Studebaker convertible in the south of France, and... I was sitting, I was driving and he was next to me and I thought, this is, doesn't get better than this. This is my absolute, I can die now. And um, he just turned to me and went, don't you find this light depressing? And it was sort of the magic hour in Provence. And I said, no, not particularly, no. And he said, you're not going to do theatre, are you? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, don't all those Cambridge wits. No, stick to stick to film. He was the opposite of my mother, basically. Stick to film, go to Hollywood. And I said, well, you know, some of the best nights of the theatre I've been watching you, Anthony. You know, you're, you're Leo or in Pravda or in 
And he said, oh, I hated everyone. <laughs> I hated it. And I said, you know, Anthony Cleopatra, he went, oh, with the fearless dench. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, when you played Lear, you know, what was that like? He said, I, I couldn't, uh, just all I, this voice in my head going, I suppose you think you're a great actor now, do you, bandy-legged little Welshman? And it was an extra, <laughs> I think he, you know, he was slightly taking the mickey, but he, uh, it was, it was a, you know, it was a quite a sober, sobering experience because <laughs> I was absolutely as as drama students and young actors are probably more than any other type of youth. We are very enthusiastic and gushing and and uh, open to yeah. you know worship. We want to worship, and and it was that was fascinating. He, he didn't really think that, I'm sure, but maybe he did. You know, all those Cambridge wits. All those Cambridge wits. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know that there was Cambridge wits. You know what I mean? Everyone complains about Cambridge wits these days. Maybe it's getting less. Maybe Anthony can come back to the theatre. It doesn't seem likely. All right, let's talk about... Do you mind if we talk about some of the, your shows? And then I must yeah. let you go. I love talking Come about it. Go on all um, Design for Living, 2001 in New York. Right? Yeah. Noel Coward's great play about a menage a trois. Yeah. With Alan Cumming and Jennifer Ely. What do you remember of that? That was my first, only time on Broadway. And, um, yeah, that doesn't seem right. It was, it was, it was, I mean, it was, I was having an amazing time. I was in New York, uh, but we were in a subscription audience, which meant that there was lots of people who had subscribed to be there and didn't choose to be subscribed to the season but didn't want to be at that particular play so there was a lot of old people fast asleep and there was uh, Alan was had just come out of his first run in, in uh, Cabaret so right. he, he was had there with his pierced nipples and we had to snog and I, there was lots of elements which weren't strictly coward <laughs> in it which you know uh, was a bit tricky, but I, I learned what callow meant. I didn't, I'd never heard the term, but I was, a lot of the reviews said it, I was very callow and I, I am and was, you know, very, I don't know. It wasn't a triumph. It wasn't a great success. I had a wonderful time, and but it had that thing that New York, hopefully it hasn't come to London yet, but the subscription audience and also the thing of the day after the review comes out mm. and everyone looked, and I hadn't looked at the reviews and you walk in and everyone looks at you like your dog has just died. And, and <laughs> <laughs> and there's an appalling atmosphere. Oh, God. That was totally new to me, that whole... Extraordinary. You know, the, the power of the critic. I don't know if that's still the case. Less I, so. I did a play on Broadway in... Um, gosh, it was when my daughter was born, so 14 years ago. And uh, so that's not, this is not a re recent report from the front line, but um, I remember having that thing. I did it with Matthew Broderick. And I remember being sat in, you know, that fantastic after-hours drink, actors drinking hole called Bar Centrale? Yeah. We go, we go yeah. There. Uh, everyone sort of drops by afterwards. And so we're, it's after the opening night, and we're sat there. I'm at the table with Mike Nichols and Nathan Lane and Matthew. And I think I want to say great American actor called Victor Garber. And somebody gets the review up on the phone. And, you know, the, the, this is sort of, you know, the cream of New York acting community. And um, suddenly the table falls yeah. completely silent. I mean, we're not even in the theatre anymore. We're at a bar amongst friends. These are all friends of Matthew's. But no one will speak to him. <laughs> These are all his no friends. No one will speak to Matthew. And Matthew eventually goes, OK, can you just show me what it says? <laughs> he looked over. It wasn't a terribly bad review. It was just right. not a rave. 
And I couldn't believe that I, you know, the most, the youngest and least significant by the factor of a million at the table, had to somehow do the job of poking my head over the parapet and trying to say to him, look, I mean, really, this is your Matthew Broderick. Look at what you've, how many Tony Awards you've won. Look at the life you've had. This is such an insignificant blip on the map. And also, it's, you know, you're brilliant in this part. And as I was doing it, I could just see Mike Nichols just looking down, <laughs> looking down at the tablecloth. Because the same with Nathan Lane. No one could save it. No one even wanted to try. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was just that extraordinary sense that in that culture and in that town, it's over. It's, yeah. it's a death. If it's not a, a rave review, somehow everything else is sort of... It's the same at award shows. I remember going that year when uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was up against... <laughs> Johnny Lee Miller? No, no. no. Um, you know, Stephen Hawking... The guy who played Eddie Redmayne? Eddie Redmayne. Goodness. And uh, so the, the two of them are going up to all the... And I went along to some, some of the awards, I think the SAG Awards or wherever it was. Or, and Cumberbatch had done this astonishing performance and was brilliant and was nominated for every award. And so had Eddie Redmayne. And when they went in, you know, they were winners. And as soon as Benedict didn't win... Mm. He was untouchable. Mm. He was he was from mm. a you know and and it's that that and it was odd because you sort of thought well hang on we're acting we don't we're not asking to be nominated right and the fact that you're nominated and don't win suddenly you become from being nominated for a great performance mm. you suddenly you're you're the loser mm. and and it's a it's an odd phenomenon which hopefully isn't so much in this country but uh, it's 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 a thing in America you know if you're not the winner then somehow you're the loser. Yeah, and I think right. what I always valued about theatre was was the collegiate was the, was the company idea. And yeah, I think that's that's what I will always love about it. Yeah, tell me about Life Is a Dream at the Donmar by Calderon, which Gee. you did in two thousand and six. Was it? God, yeah. Consults um, notes. Doesn't matter. That was, was. Uh, yeah, no, directed by Jonathan Mumby. Jonathan Mumby, yeah, and that was actually that was yeah that was the my mum died halfway through rehearsals. Oh and, gosh, and, uh, wow. Was so it was very, very significant for that reason. It was, it's a difficult play that play, and uh, you know, I think it ends up with, I can't remember the conclusion, but it's something like, you know, it's the it's the story of a of a prince who is the the son and heir of a king in Spain who, who to test to see the theory, you know, are people born a king mm. or or do they become a king? His father sticks him in a cave and treats him like a savage, treats him like an animal for 10 years. And, mm. and, um, and, you know, and he emerges from this cave, an animal. And then he um, dopes him, gives him opium and brings him back into the palace and sticks a crown on him when he <gasps> emerges and he's a king, which is an amazingly interesting, amazing dramatic idea. idea. And, uh, but the trouble is, the conclusion is that... Uh, Absolutely, one is born and cannot be made a king uh, because he then kills everybody and and quite rightly establishes uh, reestablishes the the order and you sort of can't do a play like that. I felt and have the same conclusion or have the same right. ending unless you draw attention to it. And, I, and we perhaps didn't do that, so I was always a bit uncomfortable with the politics or the psychology of the play, even though it's you know it's fascinating as a as a dramatic idea and as a period piece, but I think you have to do something more with it. And doesn't it also posit an idea that 
it's all a as the title suggests that it could all be a, a fantasy of our imagination what we think of reality this right. sort of matrixy idea of a sort of alternative yes universe. which is an amazing idea yeah. yes yeah i think i i just feel we ended up we ended up the con- i just remember the conclusion being rather uncomfortable sort of uh, now audience you'll be delighted here everything's back to normal and the and the rulers are ruling well and, that's and because the-, the spanish playwrights like the english playwrights at that time didn't want to have their heads cut off they right. just had to they had to put in a little code exactly. just on fuente overhuna right uh, bello de vega similar period and uh, he has to end with a massive sort of monarchist shout out right. having exactly. had this incredibly dissident play right. up to then okay it's the same thing and and I suppose I to do it now you you have to lose the the monarchy the pro monarchy thing. You talked about the Sheffield Crucible being your favourite theatre. Why? I suppose because it's my hometown. Yeah. My great granddad was involved in building it. Oh, really? Um, and I've done three plays there. I did the Country Wife with Grandage, and I, yeah. then I did um, Clark Peters. Daniel no, no Daniel, Daniel, Evans. Daniel Evans took over, and he. Who I was just who I was at Guildhall at the same time. He was a couple of years older than me, but or above me. Who's now co-running now the RSC? The RSC. Uh, excuse me. He's got your phone number. Well, I I congratulated him, and he said, "I hope things are all going well in your world." And I thought, oh "Dear, that doesn't sound very optimistic." <laughs> but anyway, I love him, and he he cast me as Yago, and then as Professor Higgins in yes. As You Like It, and that was a. It's it's a wonderful stage. It's actually it's a it's a beautiful theatre. It's it's the, the the audience is on three quarters of you know whatever it's called sort of round thrust stage whatever it's called, and um, it's a wonderful place to do a, a Yago soliloquy and 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 also to do a huge tap dancing not that I can tap dance of uh, My Fair Lady and and it was massively important for me every time i went back there because my mum would come with all her friends yes. and, and i would be able to say oh mum you know it's not all television oh. or, you know, without the telly i maybe wouldn't be able to do this and and all my family came my dad was a big lover of musicals particularly my fair lady and he he wasn't still alive then but he but all my brothers and sisters came several times and that was so it was a sort of homecoming and 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 i got to live in in back in the peak district and but I just love that theatre, and yeah. it's and it has a wonderful local following and and support, and and um, so I did three shows and loved every one of them. Tell me about Othello with your Wire castmate Clark yeah, Peters. Clark, so Clark rang me up. I'd done five years of the Wire with him. He said I'm playing Othello in Sheffield and come and play Iago, and I I said I leapt at it, and we we had a fantastic time. Mm. We, uh, both of us pretty shaky on learning lines and, and Clark even shakier than me actually and uh, it was a really good show it was Daniel's a brilliant director and mm-hmm. let me try and think of something yeah, I mean he mainly directed me by saying stop stop you know don't just don't just do something stand there and you know it was you know I, he got me to be more what's the word still mm. Uh, and I'm just doing those amazing Yago soliloquies from total stillness in that theatre was was a great great experience. You talked about that little gap that you need, where you think uh, is a sort of great place for the audience to be between you and the character, or you the character and the audience, and a little distance between yourself mm. and the character. Did you feel that with Yago? Did Yago was he hard to wash off in the shower afterwards? No, no, he wasn't. I done that year. I did Fred West, Yago, and some other Good awful person. God, no, that that gap was essential. And with Fred West, I I did we we did it very quickly. Thank goodness, we did it in three weeks, I think. And 
you know, anyone who was involved with Fred West, who wrote a book about him or ever met him or, you know, any of the police involved, all had breakdowns. And, and uh, so you didn't want, you can't get too close to those people. And Yargo's similar, although he's a bit, he's a bit funnier. But, um, but that, that's when that distance becomes, becomes essential. And, and uh, so, yeah, I was about to say something really interesting about Yargo, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to imagine it. <laughs> So, uh, last one, last one, um, uh, last one about the plays, and then I promise to let you go. Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Yes. Janet Mateer. Yes. There seemed to be no recognition of that. No. That <laughs> you'd ever done that. When? We, uh, when I oh, mentioned it. No, I always mix it up with the, uh, the other French one. Um, um, uh, <laughs> What's the other French one <laughs> you did? Les Miserables. Oh, Les Miserables, of course, which you did on TV, yes. Which I did on TV. No, so I, so is, I was yeah. momentarily trying to Both remember begins which, with which, <laughs> which French one that was. Which French one? Oh, yeah, then French ones. Very good. <laughs> this is the one on stage, the Christopher Hampton a- adaptation of the Chaudolo de la Clos. Yeah. Uh, epistolary thingy that made famous by the movie, of course. John Malkovich and Michelle Pfeiffer. You and Janet McTeer, yeah, Dream yeah. Team, yes, did that together. Yeah. What are your memories of that? That I remember. Uh, that that sort of play or that adaptation always suffered from its enormous success under Alan Rickman and um, Lindsay Duncan. Lindsay Duncan right. when it first came out, and no one has. There's been a lot of productions since then, and nothing's quite come up to that. And I don't know why that is. Because we're not as good as Alan Rickman and Lindsay Duncan, but but McTeer is. So I, I don't know what it is. It sort of it sort of misfired. I don't. They didn't misfire. Really? No, it didn't misfire. I I loved it, <laughs> but I I've had a um, a thing throughout my career of being because I went to Eton. I think of being cast as posh people, and I'm not very good at them. Mm. And 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 I'm much better at sort of uh, Jean Valjean or or, mm. or Iago or you know mm. and. Mm. And that, I think, maybe have been one of the times where I... Or maybe because I'm married to a, a, a posh lady and she, she comes and she says, the trouble is you just... You're not very good at upper class. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't do those parts. You don't look upper class. Right. You, don't, you know, you're just not... You don't move, you know, in that. And so I think he... In some ways, I've, I always felt the lack of... Um, Having the poise or the, yeah. uh, the 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 elegance, uh, which you have to have for that role. But he's an animal too, right? Yes, he is. And, and Malkovich certainly had made him animal and and was magic in the part. So I d- I don't know what it was. I don't know. I I think it was fairly successful, and it was it was okay. Do these things stay with you if they don't feel like you completely achieved them? Do you do you, do you get rid of it and move on, or do you feel haunted by? parts that you've played do they come back to you do you think about them long after they're gone I, I think a lot of actors have it I don't know if you do but I, th- I think I've heard great actors like Judy Dench say it the same you're never you never feel you got it and especially if it's a good part right. you never feel you got it right. and except perhaps on the last night or on the last matinee you think <laughs> oh that's how I should have played it and that's happened to me a lot right. and that's more of sort of neurosis though than, than anything else but I've had that a lot where you go Oh, I get it now, and obviously that's fallacious, it's nonsense. Um, the, you know, a lot of people. I, I remember uh, doing uh, "As You Like It" with one with Helen McCrory, um, and I remember her. The time she thought she was particular bad, I often thought she was at, at her best, right. and, and vice versa. And and 
And I think theatre can be so unreliable in that way. You're, you're never the best judge of your own work. And, and, and I think once you think, oh, I've got it now, that's it, you're in trouble. And, yeah. and, that, and that doesn't happen very often and usually on the last night. And, and so I'm aware of that. And so any sort of disappointment or, or hang-ups about that, I, I don't linger very long. I don't dwell on them. But, but it, that's part of the fun of doing it, that you you never quite crack it or you never quite the difficult stuff, the big stuff, you never crack it. That's why I'd love to have played Hamlet again, you know, and that's where you can play Hamlet four or five times um, and never crack it. And, and that's, that's the beauty of it. And, and also that you, what you think you're doing and how good or bad you think you are, the audience are usually experiencing something else. Mm. Gosh, that's so true, isn't it? Our internal monitor is so unreliable. Totally. Yeah, it's all we've got. It's all we've got. It's yeah, but we must not listen to it. You know, I no. for a long time I, I was hung up about crying, and I still have it. Where I think, and I think a lot of actors do. When you cry, you think, "Oh my God, I'm, I'm the best actor who's ever yes. lived." And yes. usually, the audience is going, "Why is he doing that?" And a little <laughs> sniffling, and you know, I was moved until he burst into tears. <laughs> And, and it's that's the worst. And I, I've done a bit of directing, and I, you know, directing simple. It's just do less and be simple. You know, simplify. Don't and stop fucking emoting. And and we love emoting. We love. Yeah. We feel nothing's going on until we feel that in your stomach. Mm. And, and I did rock and roll the Tom Stoppard play, and every night I was so delighted with myself. Every every night I I would well up with tears and I'm thinking thinking, what a marvellous actor I am. And uh, again, it was, it, the audience didn't, didn't think, didn't agree. I remember I met Nicholas de Jong, do you remember, who was the, yes. the Evening Standard critic? And he, I think, took a shine to me and he said, oh, I'm, I'm coming along to, to review the new cast of, I was in the second cast of Rock and Roll. Rufus Sewell had played it to enormous acclaim before me. And I remember going to see it and thinking, what a wonderful part, but of course I mustn't do it because it's, you can't, better Rufus and sure enough when it you know I couldn't and I uh, but I took the part and um, Nicholas de Jong came along he said don't worry I'll be really I'll be you know I'll give you a good review and uh, he came along and I'm you know I had to hunt him out afterwards and he you know it was like Matthew Broderick it was he, he wouldn't look at me in the eye and it, I thought no. oh, Christ I was that bad I thought I was great I was crying I must have been great so you never know you know oh. you never you're never the best judge and it's because it's amazing the fact that actors, you know, find, I find hard to, you know, it's not all about you and there's other stuff going on. What do you still want from it? Is there stuff that you still want from the theatre? I suppose it's the same as I've ever wanted. Well, what I want from the theatre now is not to do eight shows a week and to be able to put my daughter to bed. And, and, and so that's why I haven't done it for four or five years. But I think really more than anything, what I want from acting and what I get most from the theatre is the experience of inhabiting not only a different mind but a, a bigger mind and and a a broader mind a broader humanity that that you get from playing great roles that you get if you play shakespeare even if he's a baddie like iago you get a sense of epic size or something that's bigger than you mm. that 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 is in some way enlarging what's the word i mean ennobling in a way but it you you become i remember um uh, the cheat by jowl a director declan donnellan saying to me i auditioned for him and uh 
I mean, it wasn't. It was Adrian Noble when he was at the RSC, and he said, "You cannot. No actor can play Shakespeare without becoming a better actor. It makes you a better actor. Mm. I mean, the, the great parts do that." And you know, I've had I've played great parts in in telly and film as well, but from great writers, and and that's the joy of acting is you get to say the words of of minds much bigger than and better than your own, and and you get to feel what it's like to be someone else, and but also someone bigger and more interesting in some ways. And and I've always said that, you know, if psychopaths are people who cannot empathize, they can't, they can't imagine what it's like to be someone else. And that's really what acting's all about. It's about having the imagination think, what, what is it like to be another person? And, and therefore, if acting is the opposite of being a psychopath, then it's a, it's a good thing. And I think that's what I get from it. I have met a few psychopaths in the theater. Oh right! But, yes, uh, they exist. They, they're they're knocking around. Who? Uh, you, you want some names? Yeah. Who's <clears throat> <laughs> the last psychopath? <laughs> totally devoid of empathy. Really? God, oh. they exist, and they're actors. Yeah, yeah. and good fact, actors. There's a lot of good actors. Really? Oh yeah. Fuck. Oh well, then I take it back. But I, I no, no, maybe, no, no, no. Maybe that's what. Maybe it's true. Maybe is it true to say theatre? Or a company of actors have, you know, it's it's harder to be a, a star. It's harder to behave like a, a oh, star. Oh, completely. And, you know, you have to be a company person. You have to be, you have to compromise. You have to be a team player in some way. Maybe that's fantasy, but I think that might be more true in theatre than, than on screen. And it might be more true. No, that's not true in the UK than America. But, I, I, you know, one of the reasons The Wire was different and successful was because there weren't any stars, you know. And right. I, I resented it because, I, you know, I said, I'm the star, aren't I? And obviously <laughs> I wasn't. And, and you know, everyone kept saying, you know, you wonderful ensemble. And I was like, fuck the ensemble. I want to, I want to be the, the star. And it was partly why they hired me and partly why it was a success was because... It was all about the writing, not yeah. about the acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's, you're absolutely right. It's the anti-psychopath medium, for sure, even if a few slip through. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> something inbuilt in it. It contains, must contain empathy. Simon Russell Beale had this very good thing when I talked to him about standing on stage as Hamlet and Constantine. He had these wonderful moments of silence. You know, famously when he did Constantine Seagull for Terry Hands, he had this desk clearing before he goes and shoots himself which he sort of I can't remember how long it was three or five minutes but an eternity on stage that he just had to fill with silence he, he would clear his desk for a minute and then he would just sit there and he said he always felt in those moments and Hamlet too before he died he had this sort of moment of complete sort of stillness and he felt there was a sense that the entire audience was was feeling that they were somehow him at that moment that there was this absolutely shared connection between mm. them and this self-indulgent Russian terrible playwright, son of a famous actress, or, you know, Prince of Denmark. And I thought, that's very good, because at its best, that is what yeah. happens, isn't it? Yeah. We all share a common humanity for a nanosecond. Yeah, that it becomes not not about a performance and an, a performer and an audience. Yeah. It becomes a, a shared experience, like... Complicité, as all these companies emphasize. Yeah, no, that is it. You know, theatre doesn't exist without 
two people. Right. You can't do it on your own like right. you can painting or music. And, right. and it's where the, those two people, the performer and the audience, meet that, that I suppose is where the magic happens. Shall we go and have some lunch? Yes. At last. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Loved it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com All right. That was my chat with the wonderful Dominic West. Dominic, I'm so grateful to you for giving me that time. he just come back from a film festival in Sardinia where he'd been hanging out with Christopher Walken, and he was bronzed and magnificent. And to take some time out of his life to talk about theatre with me was very sweet and generous of him. It's great, isn't it, to see my guests, how it exists in their lives, in their imaginative lives, theatre. And it's obviously so powerful in Dominic's. From his childhood, from his mother, from that wonderfully nurturing and supportive amateur group that he started out with and did all that, all those plays with, all the way through his experience with Delaguarda, the sort of circus meets club interface of physical theatre, and the things that he still seems to hanker after doing. And I don't think it's over for him. I think he's got a magnificent chapter of his life in the theatre ahead of him. Oh, it was great to talk to him. He's a fantastic man. My guest next week is a legend. He is the writer, director of only three movies, but they're all masterpieces. You can count on me, Margaret, and Manchester by the Sea. He's also the author of six plays, at least four of which are stone-cold American classics. He is the genius, I think is not too strong a word for him, that is Kenneth Lonergan. Join me for my chat next week with Kenny Lonigan. He is something to listen to. Pressing play on his extraordinary brain was just one of the great privileges I've had doing this podcast. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production, executive produced by the terrific Louise Berry. Thank you, Louise. My producer is Ben Backhouse, who makes everything happen. Um, thank you to the musicians, Iggy Cake, for writing and playing the theme tune, his sister Phoebe Cake, for singing it so beautifully, and to the stage manager for getting us on and off stage. I hope I see you next week uh, for my chat with Kenny. It's really a good one. He's quite a thing. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door.